Excellent. Good afternoon. How are you doing, doctor? Hey, it's great to be back. I just tweeted out for the whole universe to join us right now. So, Excellent. Thank you very much for that. And uh, you'll be able to watch the replay or watch it live. And we also have some great questions for you today. So I hope you're ready for that. How's your day going? Good. You know, I'm ready. Uh, you know, many people know that I was the first to publish a treatment approach for acute COVID-19 in the peer-reviewed literature. The very first one is called McCullough Protocol. It's now copyrighted. And I'm on the verge of publishing the very first peer-reviewed detoxification protocol for those who've had multiple episodes of COVID or the COVID-19 vaccines. And sadly, many people have had both. Yeah, absolutely. They have. And we're going to go right into that. Uh, first, I just want to say to you, thank you very much for being here. And thank you very much for your work. I understand it's a very tough battle being a freedom fighter, especially when you have a medical license and you're doing that kind of work. So I really want to thank you very much for all the hard work you're doing for all of us. Even the ones that don't like what you're doing, you're even working for them. So thank you very much for helping us. <laughs> you know, there's people out there that, that uh, challenge this. Even they need this help and they may not know it yet. So thank but, you very much. Jason, do you know that no one has actually ever directly challenged me? Uh, you know, really? No, chief, no chief of medicine, no division chief. I mean, maybe some, you know, bot on Twitter, but but no real person, you know, no real right, person uh, said, well, uh, you shouldn't do this, but never. No, it's more of the vaccine lovers, the people that think it's great. Those are the group I'm talking about. They may not necessarily come after you, but they're not the ones looking for this information yet. So thank uh, wait, you very much. Minute, for wait a minute, Jason, vaccine lovers. I got to ask you, do you know anybody who's taken seven shots? Actually, no, I do not. I think five is the limit that I know. So maybe you right. got a point there that people well, are that, coming around. Yeah, that tells you something. Listen, if someone's following the program, they should be on seven shots. We have two presidents of the United States, Biden and, and uh, Trump. Neither one have said they're on seven shots. Neither is Rochelle Lewinsky, Fauci, Bill Gates, um, Ashish Jha. Anderson Cooper, Sanjay Gupta, no one has publicly said they're on seven shots. I think that's very interesting. If this stuff was so good, why aren't people juicing on messenger RNA every six months? Maybe they're learning the lessons, seeing the harm come near people they know, have their own side effects to it, and maybe they're starting to learn. Yeah. Right. Now we need to detox them for the the ones that took it, whether it was under duress, whether they wanted it, whatever reason. Mm -hmm. I think it's important for them to understand that there's ways to help themselves mitigate some of the damage, even if they don't feel bad or have any problems now. I think it's a good idea for them to pay attention to some of the stuff you have to offer here. Yeah, let's talk about the rationale to detox. When these vaccines first rolled out, we had no idea how long they were going to stay in the body. Let's just focus on the messenger RNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna. 94% uh, of people who took a shot took either Pfizer or Moderna. In the United States, it was overall 75% of the population took at least one shot. 25% like me didn't take it. Boy, smartest health move I ever made. Um, but of the 75% who did, 94% of them took Pfizer and Moderna. So uh, this is uh, what we were told initially is that it just stays in the arm and it's out of the body in a couple of days. Not true. No. Not true. Now we have paper after paper. Castriuda, now uh, a recent paper from Harvard's coming out of my Substack. This is terrible. This stuff is in the blood circulating probably for a year or more. 
And so if people took a shot one, then they took shot two. They're just, just adding more to the system. The, the messenger RNA was altered by both Pfizer and Moderna uh, in a fundamental way. Uh, uh, RNA has four base pairs, two pyrimidines and two purines. They changed one of the pyrimidines, uh, uh, uracil to pseudouridine, and that made it indestructible. It's, it's not, it's not uh, broken down by human ribonucleases, and, and that's what made it so efficient. The problem is the body you know, has a hard time if, if it can really even get the RNA out of the body. There's a paper by uh, Rolkin and colleagues demonstrating that the RNA is stuck in lymph nodes for at least two months, and that's as long as they looked in uh, lymph node sampling. And then the genetic code is installed, and it produces the lethal part of the virus, the spine on the surface of the virus called the spike protein. The Wuhan right. spike protein is produced, it's lethal. It's produced for an uncontrolled quantity and uncontrolled duration of time. Now breaking data suggest that indeed the spike protein is being produced for over a year in people mm -hmm. who took the, the vaccine. And, and then the body has a hard time getting rid of it, like you said there. So we need to work at different ways, come up with protocols, yeah. use well, other well, treatments. Well, I mentioned the RNA. So we, we have ribonucleases that, that break down human messenger RNA, but they, they, they can't break down this form of RNA. It's called messenger RNA, but some are starting to use the term modified RNA since it's been pseudo-originated. Okay. Now, the spike protein, that itself was engineered in the Wuhan Institute of Virology in Wuhan, China. It was actually a U.S. plan, a U.S. code by Ralph Barrick at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And in 2015, Barrick, as senior author, Vineet Manacharya's first author, published in Nature Medicine and Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that they had created a new chimeric SARS virus. That was the prototypical SARS-CoV-2 virus. And so they, they announced it. 2015. Yeah, 2015. So this, uh, this uh, uh, spike protein was designed to be invasive, communicable, and lethal. And so when people took these shots of Pfizer Moderna, they were getting the, the essentially near permanent genetic code for a lethal protein. And so the gamble was that people would get out of this and get some immunity, but that wouldn't die. I mean, that is a tremendous gamble that people took when they took these shots. Most people didn't even ask what's in them and how does it work? How long do they last? Even doctors took these without asking these fundamental questions. So as we learn right now to summarize, messenger RNAs in the body uh, circulating at least by, for a month by a paper by Castro Yoda, spike protein easily a year, Bruce Patterson, and now recent paper out of Harvard in the preprint uh, server system. It's up on my Substack, Courageous Discourse. So people feel sick after these shots. To make matters worse, they get COVID. And so they get some more spike protein and inflammation. And so people get vaccinated and they get COVID as well. Now, do you know anybody who's taken a vaccine that has not gotten COVID? That has not gotten COVID? No, I don't. There you go. So the you know, Everybody I know has COVID. Right. So the vaccines have basically uniform failure. They fail completely. And uh, in a paper by Klaassen and colleagues, 97% of Americans have had COVID. So the vaccines have completely failed. And people have been loaded with this spike protein. Now, the spike protein, normally proteins are broken down by uh, enzymes called proteases. And this is done inside the cell 
they can be in endosomes, lysosomes, and, and they're broken down. But the spike protein is resistant to breakdown, extremely resistant to breakdown. There's two segments, the S1 segment and the S2 segment. And when they're adjoined together, it's considered full length spike. Bruce Patterson has shown after the COVID infection, you get the S1 segment. So you get the, the outer tip of it. But after the vaccine, you get the full thing. You get S1 and S2. So you're loaded with this spike protein. It's so like a one-two point. Yeah, you get, you get both. And so it really connotates a tremendous amount of, of virulence, autoimmunity. The spike protein damages the heart, the brain, adrenal glands, uh, ovaries, testes, and actually causes blood clotting. The spike protein is physically in the blood clots. So we, we know that for a fact. Uh, spike protein tips off autoimmune syndromes, well-described now. A fatal one's called multi-system inflammatory disorder, MIS. The other one is VITT, vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia. These are disaster syndromes. People take these shots. We know in a, in a study by Zogby and colleagues, about 15% of people are kind of chronically sick after the shots. The CDC vSAFE data uh, indicates in 10 million Americans, 7.7% get so sick they have to go to the ER to be hospitalized you know, immediately after the shot. That's how tough they are to take them. People are not excited about taking these right now just because of the acute risks. Well, this is what we've learned. The spike protein is found in the brain and the heart and these organs, and the human body can't get rid of it. Now, the good news is Tanakawa and colleagues in Japan broke the news that a Japanese supplement called natokinase, natokinase, it's, it's a natural enzyme that's derived from the breakdown of soybeans by a bacteria called Bacillus subtilis natto. It's a natural kind of fermentation process. The Japanese eat this fermented soy. It's kind of tough to eat, uh, but they've been eating it for a thousand years because it has medicinal value. It's been a, an over-the-counter supplement in Japan for 20 years. It's used actually as a mild blood thinner and as a cardiovascular uh, supplement mm -hmm. to actually try to reduce blockages. And so, uh, so natokinase, Tadakawa shows, clearly breaks down the spike protein. There's no doubt about it. Uh, spike protein inside cells, cell lysate models. Uh, that's great news. Now, uh, the next product that's been shown to break down the spike protein by a different set of proteolytic cleavage joints is bromelain. Bromelain is a family of enzymes that's derived from the stems of pineapples. And bromelain itself is an FDA-approved drug used topically in a 35% ointment for burns in, in, in burn wound management. So we know bromelain works like a medicine. It can be taken as an oral supplement, 500 milligrams a day. And that's also a modest blood thinner, but it'll help dissolve the spike protein. Natokinase and bromelain work by different mechanisms. So our aim is to more rapidly degrade the spike protein and not rely on just one. Now, the third product doesn't degrade the spike protein, but it actually helps mitigate some of the inflammation of the spike protein fragments. And that's been tested even in randomized prospective trials of people who take the vaccine or the shots or both. And that is curcumin. Curcumin is the orange type of spice that is derived from turmeric. And um, it's not well absorbed. So it, it has to be in a nano formula or better liposomal formula, or even better yet, just combine it with piperine, which is extract of black pepper, and that'll get the, the curcumin to uh, absorb. So that would be 500 milligrams twice a day. So to summarize, base spike detox, BSD, natokinase 2,000 units, 
which is equivalent to 100 milligrams twice a day, uh, bromelain 500 milligrams a day, and then curcumin 500 milligrams twice a day. We believe in our clinical practice, the shortest we can go on this is three months. People don't start turning the corner until three months. Uh, some need a year or more. But it's the base of treatment by which we can add other drugs, base spike detox. You can get all of these products over the counter. You can buy them at Amazon or GNC stores or anywhere you want to go. Probably the best spike product, uh, the, the, the natokinase uh, part of the spike, is actually called um, uh, Spike Support from the wellness company, twc.health, twc.health, Spike Support. That would be the natokinase. So you need to add to that uh, another bottle of bromelain and another bottle of curcumin. Okay, so we're gonna put that link up on the screen for people to go see that. Um, the Good. wellness company you said, right? Yeah, wellness company. That's the highest quality product. Um, it's all made from U.S. sourcing. Uh, there's no fillers. It has some additional uh, additives we think is helpful, including selenium, Irish sea moss, um, black sativa, which is anti-inflammatory. Listen, uh, you know, I'm a medical doctor. I prescribe drugs. I'm not an expert in, in natural supplements, but I've tried every drug under the sun for this problem and nothing works. What seems right. to work is the natural products, which is quite interesting. How did you find yourself looking into that? Did you find some studies or you just looked at some data? How did you get yeah. yourself into that? No, I mean, we, we were searching, right? We were struggling with our patients. I was prescribing, you know, a variety of different drugs, not really making any progress. And we saw more and more data say, listen, the problem is the spike protein. So if we give ivermectin, that doesn't get rid of the spike protein or hydroxychloroquine or prednisone or colchicine or naltrexone. None of those get rid of the spike protein. We have to get rid of the spike protein. So then we started working with uh, natokinase at first, and we, we found people after about three months, they started to get their, their uh, sensation back in the hands and feet. Blood clots started to re resolve, and people started to get better. Now, I can't make any therapeutic claims because there's no large randomized prospective placebo-controlled trials, but there's none planned at this point in time. And so many people said, Dr. McCullough, I don't care. If you think this is a go, I'm going to go for it. Oh my goodness. Now, you're talking about spreading around the body, being in there for a year, the spike protein. Does it transfer to a baby? Do we have any data that transfers to a baby? And then what's the effects on the baby that, of a vaccinated mother? We don't have any proof that it transmits to the baby, but I've interviewed on my show, Courageous Discourse, Helene Benoun, who's the top scientist on this, uh, former scientist at INSERM in France, and she's convinced it does. There's no doubt about it. The spike protein and the genetic messenger RNA go right to the baby. Well, we have this case in uh, Ottawa where there's a detective, Helen Groose, who's looking into, was looking into the effects of this and found nine babies who died suddenly uh, shortly after vaccination of the mothers. So we're looking oh. to see if there's, there's a connection there. Mm. Well, we know in a paper by Hannah and colleagues, the messenger RNA clearly gets into breast milk. That's been shown. And remember Pfizer, Moderna, Janssen, they all excluded pregnant women from the randomized trials. They knew pregnant women should not be getting these shots. But the media said it was safe and effective, including for pregnant women. So what happened there? What's the disconnect between the actual manufacturers saying it's not safe to the media telling us it is safe? What what happened there? Do you know? I, you know, I think because it was not fully FDA approved. If it was fully FDA approved, I mean, they would have strict rules. There's no way uh, pregnant women would take it because it wouldn't be, you know, in line with the FDA approval. 
But it was all this emergency use authorization. People said, listen, just take the vaccine anyway. And it was all, it was very loose. The vaccine centers were not manned by professionals. I mean, I can tell you as a doctor, if a pregnant woman came up to a vaccine center and I was there, I would say, no, you can't take the shot. It's the experimental genetic code for the lethal spike protein. We would never inject that in a pregnant woman's body. But do you know in the first week of the vaccine, program in the United States, December 10th to December 17th, over 3,000 pregnant women took these shots. And we know now overall through the pandemic, 65% of women who delivered babies either took the shots uh, before they were pregnant and dur- or during pregnancy. This is astonishing. Now in a paper by Hoyer and colleagues uh, published from the National Center for Health Statistics in the CDC website, we have record maternal mortality, record. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, doctor. Um, was it good for anybody? We heard information like the elderly at a certain stage, maybe it was effective for them. We're finding out that's completely false now. Right. So the randomized trials, randomized prospective double blind placebo control trials, uh, initially showed a reduction in, uh, just binary COVID, uh, not, not reducing severity infection, no reduction in hospitalization and death, no reduction in transmission. But that quickly eroded. Do you know in, in emails obtained through the court system, Rochelle Lewinsky of the CDC, in January of 2021, she knew about wide open failure of the vaccines. Americans were getting sick left and right with COVID and the vaccines were failing. And, and, and some of her emails say, well, we got to talk to Tony Fauci and Francis Collins about that. They were going to talk about it. So it was obvious it didn't work at the beginning. Now there are multiple, multiple papers that are just flawed in bias, claiming that the vaccines work. Most of them, the papers are written by doctors who took the vaccines and they're at institutions that mandated the vaccines. So these doctors couldn't publish an honest paper if they wanted to. Okay, so flawed and bias. So are they more opinions than they are actual data and analysis? Like what these, no, these no, papers are their opinion? No, they have data, and let me kind of share with you how this works. Um, There were so many biases in the data. We can only rely on the randomized uh, prospective double-blind trials for efficacy, period. And this is how how they were um, biased. So first off, and there's actually a paper now written about this, about these forms of bias. First off, um, in the United States, there was no linkage between the vaccine system and the hospital system. So when people came in the hospital, they relied on what the patient said is their vaccine status. And if they couldn't talk to the patient, if they're on the ventilator or in isolation, they just assumed they were unvaccinated. And, And that is the default of the electronic medical record. The biggest one in the nation is called Epic, and its default is unvaccinated. So they assumed Virtually everybody in the ICU was unvaccinated. So that was the first major flaw. Second flaw is when people came into the hospital, they never adjudicated uh, why they were there. I mean, once somebody has COVID and they come back six months later for a hip fracture, so that's not a case of COVID. It's something else. And so there was no adjudication for what they had. There was clearly no randomization. Uh, and, uh, and, and very importantly, um, there was no accounting for who got early treatment and who already had COVID and had natural immunity. And so it was my experience that the vaccinated were the first to be running for early treatment. They were scared to death of, 
of, of, um, of the virus. And so the vaccinated, the ones got early treatment and they tended to survive the hospitalization because they got early treatment. Uh, but all these factors worked to, to make it falsely look like the vaccines were doing something when in fact they weren't. Yeah, we got some information out of Nova Scotia through a freedom of information request, and they confirmed safe and effective rate, 0%. Uh, so the government of Nova Scotia has already confirmed this. And what I'm going to do there, uh, Dr. McCullough, is I'm going to bring in a paramedic who's been vaccine injured. He's a smart gentleman. Um, he has a few questions for you. I didn't take the vaccine, so he has a, a different perspective on it than I do. So if you don't mind, I'm going to bring him in sure. to ask you a couple questions. Hello, Chet. How are you doing, man? Good. How are you? Hello, Dr. Magala. Hi. It's a it's a pleasure to to finally meet you. Uh, it was uh, on behalf of myself, so many that have been injured, and I guess all the people in the country. Like, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for continuing to be a patient advocate, and just just having the just being stoic and steadfast in that because so much of what I've seen in the last three years is thrown patient advocacy and informed consent right out the window. And it's, it's been egregious to see. Um, yeah, it, and thanks. Uh, there, there's a free fall of just corruption, dishonesty, uh, people abrogating the Hippocratic oath. It's yeah. astonishing. I'm so sad to see this happen. And, you know, my colleagues won't talk to me. They won't respond to emails. Uh, they're holding their heads in shame for what they're doing. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's the same for myself. And I would also like to take a moment to thank you for the work that you did alongside with us at the National Citizens Inquiry. It was an honor to testify, be chosen to testify on the first day alongside you. So thank you very much from on behalf thank of you. myself and the entire country. Thank um, you. So some of these questions I know the answers to, but I think they'd be good for people at home um, to, uh, to kind of expand kind of their knowledge as to what's happened to some people. And uh, prior to the pandemic, a lot of people uh, had never heard of myocarditis or pericarditis mm -hmm. or what those things were. And I was wondering if you would mind explaining for the folks at home what those conditions are, how they differ, and what it is meant by subclinical myocarditis or pericarditis. Okay, good question. So myocarditis is inflammation of the heart muscle. Pericarditis is inflammation of the sac around the heart. And prior to the pandemic, they were quite rare. So uh, myocarditis before the pandemic could be caused by parvovirus, which is a virus you get from your pets, by um, uh, influenza can rarely cause it, uh, Coxsackie virus, adenovirus. And then there's a lethal form of myocarditis called giant cell. And we don't know what causes it, but I had a case in my career and, and, and it was fatal for the patient. It's a, it's a brutal illness. Uh, pericarditis is inflammation around the lining of the heart, and, and, and uh, that can be caused by, again, these viral infections. Sometimes we don't know. Uh, sarcoidosis, systemic lupus, sometimes um, cancer can actually involve the lining of the, of the heart. So that causes pericarditis. But because the heart and the lining of the, around the heart, the pericardium, they're in, they're in contact with one another. If the inflammation is towards the outer um, part of the left ventricle and the right ventricle, we'll actually get both. We'll get myopericarditis. And what we're... Oh, that will be his end, so we'll wait a moment. Yeah. That was good, though, what he's explaining. Very good explanation. Yeah. So you were at the NCI with him on the first day? 
Yes, I uh, I testified in the afternoon. Peter McCullough was uh, second, and I was second last, I think. Yeah. So, and was that on the East Coast? Yeah, that was on the first day in uh, Toronto, Nova Scotia. Um, I can, I'll, I'll, I don't know if I ever sent it to you, but I can send share oh, with you. Looks like we're back. We're back. Sorry, Sorry Dr. McCullough, yeah, we lost you for a minute there. Yeah, well, listen, there was a myocarditis cyber attack. Where are you guys at? <laughs> You're way up in Canada, I, or where? We are in Canada. Uh, we got the East yeah. Coast and the West Coast. Oh yeah, God, C East Coast, C West Coast is probably, uh, probably, uh, yeah, interference. It, it was a trans, it was a trans Canada takedown. Well, listen, before <laughs> before COVID, the rate of myocarditis in a paper estimated uh, by Arolio uh, uh, and colleagues was about four cases per million. Four cases per million. Then COVID came in, and there was a concern that COVID could cause myocarditis. So there was a huge search. You know, the NCAA Big Ten Athletic League, that's University of Michigan, that league, uh, they screened every single athlete. About 30% of them got COVID. U.S. military screened everybody. Israelis screened everybody. They found a handful of cases of myocarditis with regular COVID, no hospitalizations or deaths, Okay. So they gave up looking for it. It was so rare. So COVID itself does not cause frequent myocarditis and it's not serious. So we, we can get rid of that. That's before the vaccines. Now, October 22nd, 2020, the US FDA Verbeck meeting, the vaccine meeting, they put on a slide that they expect the vaccines to cause myocarditis. It's right on one of their presentation slides. June of 2021, the US FDA says the vaccines cause myocarditis. They cause heart inflammation. But they say that it's transient and that it's mild. Hmm. Now, there was a paper by Tracy Hogue, UC Davis, said, wait a minute, 86% of these kids are getting hospitalized. That's not mild. Uh, now we're seeing death after death after death due to, to vaccine-induced myocarditis. And so Nick Hulsher and myself, from, he's from University of Michigan. I'm a, I'm a former graduate there. And we've got a paper now, fatal autopsy-proven vaccine-induced myocarditis, 100% of the time. So when the autopsies are ordered, they find myocarditis as the fatal cause uh, in these heart cases 100% of the time. It's fatal. And now we've got examples. I don't know if you've been following sports, but did you hear the um, case vignette of Oscar Cabrera Adamas? That's I haven't. Awesome. Yeah. Well, listen to this, you guys. He's a Puerto Rican basketball player. He plays in the European leagues. 2021, he does a face plant and has a cardiac arrest on the floor. I mean, wide open cardiac arrest. They shock him. They get him back. Then he tweets out to everybody. He said, I got myocarditis from the vaccine. So he tells everybody. And he's out of basketball for two years. Now it's 2023. He's at a health center, and he's going to take a maximum stress test to kind of make sure he's ready to go back on the court. And this is terrible, you guys. He dies on the treadmill. He, I, listen, I'm a cardiologist. I've never had a patient die on the treadmill because we always have the defibrillation equipment. We have IVs uh, and all the other crash cart items. He died on the treadmill. I can't imagine what type of cardiac arrest that was. That he died two years after he had myocarditis. That's the concerning thing. So we're seeing athlete drop after athlete drop. Uh, today, a high school kid just dropped uh, in the United States. Uh, we've seen Nick uh, um, 
uh, Ui Chuchu from uh, USC. He, he had a cardiac arrest. He had a if defibrillator put in, probably a subcutaneous ICD. He's back playing for U USC. Uh, Bronny James had a near miss. He's the son of LeBron James. Uh, John Stockton, former Utah Jazz uh, point guard, all-star. John's keeping track. He says there's over 1,000 U.S. Uh, high school, college, and pro athletes that have gone down. L listen, when somebody has myocarditis, our cardiology guidelines say they can't participate in sports because the surge of adrenaline can precipitate cardiac arrest. Wow. wow. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's, it, I, I know that that case you spoke of, I remember when it happened, it's, it's, it's egregious. And in my practice, I've been a paramedic for 12 years. Um, I only know of one suspected case of myocarditis, it's not a patient I had, it's somebody that I know, uh, and they unfortunately passed away. But, um, up until COVID, like COVID, I know of one one uh, young kid that got myocarditis from COVID, but the number of people I know who have myocarditis, pericarditis, or blood clots, um, like people that I know personally, is in the dozens. Um, call like there's one of the paramedics that's on my rotation is is having issues outside of myself. Like I I've, oh. I have what I suspect is pericarditis, mm. um, and maybe you can answer this question. So. Um, many of the people who I know who have been vaccine injured when they, when they are seen and um, trying to get help through the, the healthcare system, they're often being gaslit or misled mm -hmm. or they're not being taken seriously. So in my case, I presented with shortness of breath and chest pain, all of which were exacerbated when I was laying on my back, mm -hmm. not aggravated by uh, exterior palpation or anything like that. My blood pressure was significantly elevated. My heart rate was elevated. And uh, in my EKGs, I had PR depression. I had concave ST elevation. Uh, spodic sign was present. Um, mm -hmm. And in my P waves in leads two and in V1, uh, had like the camel hump or like the larger one on the bottom on V1 for left atrial enlargement. As I'm sure, I'm sure you you know very much far better than I do. <laughs> Well, um, I'm very but, impressed. You become an aficionado on the yeah. classic ECG pr um, presentation it's, of yeah. pericarditis. Any of the medical students out there, residents, listen in. Uh, you're doing a great Thank job. Thank you. Yeah, um, and so, and it's well, in in my practice as a paramedic, it's very important that we can uh, identify the difference on an EKG between myocarditis, pericarditis, and right. like an MI uh, for those right. at home, uh, a, heart, a heart attack because they present differently electrically and we use in, in Nova Scotia as uh, advanced care paramedics uh, can use TNK in the field. Uh, mm -hmm. to, so we, we have to make sure we, we got it, everything, all your ducks in a row. Um, and the other thing that was in my case is uh, my LDH, uh, I can't remember if it's lactate or lactase, the hydronase, was in the 500s and the 600s and kept climbing and climbing and climbing. And when I brought this up to the physicians and said, I'm concerned that this isn't being addressed. I was told it's either esophageal spasms. I was told to be quiet in less than polite terms um, and then denied like further diagnostic tests. Do you have any advice for those who are kind of running into those brick walls and dealing with like the gaslighting and the just the um, the inability to listen or the un not being not being heard. Do you have any advice for people in that situation? Because it's that that has been the the greatest um, 
hurdle towards care I've found in most people that have been vaccine injured. It's so frustrating. You're right. People are getting gaslit. You know why? Because the doctors took the shots themselves. The hospitals, the doctors can't psychologically handle the stuff is in their body. So you ought to ask your doctor, hey, doc, have you taken seven shots? (laughs) Oh, no, I haven't taken seven. Well, why not? That's the program. How come you're not following the program, doc? Well, I'm kind of worried. Okay, well, if you're kind of worried about not taking seven shots, I'm kind of worried about taking two and ending up with pericarditis. I've got a high LDH. Let's work it up. It's either, you know, liver source or hematologic source and uh, and let's get after it. But no, you had uh, classic pericarditis. Now, one of the, the um, threats to this, you probably remember this uh, news announcer um, in the United States. It's a female anchor and she had pericarditis uh, uh, so bad that she had to have the fluid drained out. She had pericardial tamponade. And um, that is theirs. Yeah, and so she she uh, had this, and uh, and she was out of the hospital for a month. I mean, out of, of the work for a month. She, um, uh, uh, I'm going to get her name here. She um, had to have drainage um, and uh, uh, procedures done. And uh, the bottom line is, she went back on TV with her cardiologist and. Um, cardio drainage and and you know what the story that she cooked up her name is um her name is yasmin Uh, i'm gonna get it here and she on tv now she she had already tweeted out she took the vaccines so i took these vaccines and i want to say this was in uh, she took them through december here's my booster she shows her cards in january she has this so we know she's vaccinated her name is yasmin vasokian Okay, V-O-S-S-O-U-G-H-I-A-N. She's an MSNBC announcer. She gets on TV and she brings her cardiologist on. And instead of bringing up the vaccines, do you know what they say it is? She goes, I got this from the common cold. Oh, come on. I got this. It was the biggest lie you could ever see. She looked so uncomfortable. She looked angry. She goes, I got a cold and I ended up with this. And they had a needle around the sack of my heart, and I was hospitalized three times. She was angry. And then, um, uh, and then she asked her cardiologist, and he goes, well, yeah, we are seeing more of this. And, and I think what happened is, uh, you know, the, the, the TV station said, listen, don't say it's the vaccine. Don't. And so they, right. they were actually just trying to play along. It was so obvious. Yeah, I think I think you see that a lot where in especially in the media, people know something happened to them, but their arms are being twisted um, and they're just they're having they're having their backs put against the wall because their their livelihood is being threatened or mm-hmm. or what have you. It's it's this is it's egregious no matter what. Like this is what has happened to like our profession, like healthcare in general. Right. It's it's been butchered and people's trust is gone. And um and I'm not no. sure how we how we fix that. Um, it, yeah, it's so true. There she is. Uh, 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 listen to this. I did a Twitter poll, Jason, Chet. I did a Twitter poll, and I asked the question, uh, why don't people come out and just tell the truth? Now, she's obvious. She took the vax. She has pericarditis. She has pericardial fusion. It's as straightforward as possible. And I did a Twitter poll, and I asked the reason why. Do you know what the reason why people don't tell the truth is? 
the most common fear? The, the, the answer is they, they're afraid they're going to lose more. So they've already lost something, and they're going to lose more if they tell the truth. So their employment or health or friends yeah. or things like that. Exactly. Uh, that's yeah. that's a, actually a good example of what happens when sometimes when people experience trauma and develop uh, things such as PTSD is when they come forward and they ask for help. They're shamed. They are dismissed. Uh, they are met with hostility. And so that it becomes imprinted in their brain that they have to withdraw. And a lot of people in these last uh, two to three years have developed, certainly developed signs of PTSD because of what is done done to them by their government and their media. And then when they when something does go wrong and they're asking for help, they're being gaslit. And so that that trauma response goes. And as you said, they're, they're they become concerned that they're going to lose more. It's like, are they going to yeah. take my job? Are they? Are they just not going to help me? Are they going to like call me call me names or what have you? It's it's this this should never happen. Like especially in medicine, it's even if it's like it doesn't matter who you are. Like in medicine, we're supposed to. It's our duty to help you, whether it's um, the little kid who's just got a cold or it's the drunk driver who just killed a family. Like it's, it's the same, they get, they're supposed to get the same level of treatment, no matter what that is, that is, that is the duty we have taken up as healthcare professionals and what has been done, uh, in our professions and just across the board is just, it's unbelievable. It's disgusting. And I think part of that, part of that, sorry, doctor, part of that problem is a psychological one too, because they did it first. There was a period of time where they were the good guys in their mind, where they were vilifying us, name calling us, canceling us, going after our job. So they know exactly what consequences could be. So I think that's on top of it, the psychological fear as well. Uh, I agree. Uh, Chad, I wanted to ask you about something. I sure. I interviewed uh, for my show, my podcast, uh, Courageous Discourse, uh, my, um, my Substack, and also my podcast, America Out Loud Talk Radio. So he was on both. I interviewed Oklahoma paramedic Harry Fisher. And, uh, you know, he gave this vignette. I, I wonder if this you noticed this. He said early on in the vaccine program, do you remember when people are lining up to take the shots? They were outside these vaccine centers mm -hmm. for hours. He said that they would give the vaccine and people would have a cardiac arrest right there in the center. And, and of course, the paramedics would rush there and they'd do CPR and they'd try to shock the patient and save them. And he, he, Harry said he looked over his shoulder and no one stepped out of line. They were just watching this happen. We and had a we had a medic or a nurse testify to something similar at the National Citizens Inquiry as well, where they had uh, actually I believe it was a lady's mother who had passed away right in the pharmacy right after getting the shot, and like they they worked the cardiac arrest there right in the pharmacy, and nobody nobody budged, nobody asked a question. It's just it's like it's. It's eerie in a way. Well, it, it goes to show you that this fear-driven um, trance, these people were processing it. They were, they were processing the fact that the vaccine causes death, but I'm so afraid of what's going on, I'm going to take one of these shots anyway. And, yeah. uh, you know, some people, uh, you know, I've talked to some people about this who, who are on the other side. And I said, I'm so concerned with the number of people who die with the vaccine. And, you know, the answer is, well, listen, some people have to die in order to, you know, to vaccinate the population. Some people think it's just collateral damage 
to have large numbers of people die. And I've heard that's people nice. say that. That's not how we practice medicine. It's no. not how I practice medicine. It's not, it's not the way it goes. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I've said for a vaccine that doesn't uh, stop transmission, it failed rapidly, it never reduced hospitalization and death. The consent form doesn't even say any of that. The consent form says past tense that it has been shown to reduce the risk of COVID. That's the only thing the consent form says. Any death with this product, any death is one death too many. One because it essentially doesn't work. It, it was a Hail Mary. It was a trial to see if it would do something and it didn't work. Any, any other medication that we use, um, like even something as simple as say using nitroglycerin uh, for a cardiac patient. And if they have a sudden uh, uh, more profound drop in blood pressure than we would expect or had in, uh, or had in, had in anticipated, we, we don't carry on with that treatment. We stop immediately mm -hmm. and we, we address that situation. We, or uh, God forbid, say something, we were transferring a patient, we drop the patient. We just don't keep going. We, we stop what we're doing and we help them in that moment. And mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's bothered me immensely that this, that that hasn't happened in this case where it's just, it's, it's, it's full speed ahead, nonstop, no matter how many people get run over and injured by this. It's, we've never done this for any other medication even like like even if something as benign as like uh i don't know say like tylenol or ibuprofen in comparison like if they have an adverse reaction we stop immediately we don't give them more and we investigate what's going on and we help that patient but for whatever reason whether it's psychological or malfeasance or what have you um that's not happening in this case um well, listen to this uh, vignette. It's published by uh, a pathologist in Germany, Mainz, Germany. First author is Mortz. So there's a 76-year-old man. He's in a senior living facility, and he's got Parkinson's. Um, but, but he can talk to his family, and he can get around. He was, he was walking okay. He takes the first Pfizer shot and gets a pretty severe reaction. It, it really kind of knocks him down. Uh, he's somewhat disoriented, doesn't feel too good, but they think it's probably just the, the shot. So then he takes a second shot and he gets worse. At that point in time, he no longer recognizes his family members. He's babbling. He's, he's really debilitated. So he's in a wheelchair after his second shot. Um, family is, is very frustrated. Now, six months later in the senior facility, he gets a booster. He gets a booster and he gets hypotension, dizziness, and within a day or so, he dies. His cardiopulmonary arrest and he dies. The family requests an autopsy. They're furious at this point in time. And the vaccine is everywhere in the body. The spike proteins in the brain, the heart, uh, the vital organs. He has inflammation all throughout the body. It basically just rotted out all the organs in his body. But the point I'm making is, you know, if they would have stopped after shot one, he, he potentially would have survived. Um, this idea of just keep giving shots as people get sicker uh, is astonishing. I went to Australia and I met this uh, teacher. She's 40 years old. She's teacher, aerobic instructor, very active, perfectly healthy. Because they essentially have a no jab, no job policy in Australia, takes the first shot 
and uh, she gets some chest pain and doesn't feel well. Uh, she just the second shot, she gets wide open myopericarditis. There's no doubt about it. Myopericarditis, you know, serious. She's on all these drugs. She Six months later, she's forced to take the booster. And at that stage, she develops like a neurologic syndrome of, of motor disorder. She's shaking her, she's um, dysarthric in her speech. She almost looks like she has multiple sclerosis. And at this point in time now, she's in a motorized wheelchair. She can't walk anymore. She can't even work as a teacher. She's absolutely ruined. And so we went from parliament office to parliament office in the upper house of parliament to show the show them what the vaccine does. And you know, the doctor's official diagnosis for her in her chart is that she has a functional disorder, that this is all in her head. This is just, she's just faking it according to the Australian doctors. It's astonishing. Wow. Yeah, that's what I was told too. And I was making it up. Wow. Um, despite wow. EKG changes that are clear as day, I've shown them to my colleagues and they said, well, I can see that from space. Um, I can show them to you if you want, but um, the, uh, do you have any advice for not, not so much for those of us who've been, but like those of us who are like when we're practicing, like say for instance, like uh, in talking to my colleagues, like they've been dealing with kids with myocarditis now for considerable, like it's, We've gone from having virtually never seeing it. <laughs> like we, we we don't see kids very often in EMS. It's typically a seizure, trauma, kids with croup, or kid got sick and mom and dad got scared, typically. That's typically what it is. We certainly don't see cardiac patients, um, but that has since changed. Um, do you have any advice for those of us, say, like paramedics or nurses, um, working in the field, uh, responding to these calls, and then having to deal with, when arriving at the emergency room, dealing with a physician who just simply wants, doesn't want to listen. Because, well, they like to, to disregard us as paramedics to be, uh, quite often to begin with, but um, it, it isn't helping patients any when we, we come in and present, like, I think this patient has experiencing myocarditis, pericarditis, or what have you. Um, or other symptoms that may be pertaining to the vaccine. Do you have any any suggestions on how to navigate that conversation with physicians? Well, listen, I'm, I'm very familiar with paramedic run sheets. Uh, years ago, I did one of the largest studies. We looked over 10 years of paramedic run sheets in a big study we did when I lived in Detroit. It was actually about out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. First author is Thompson, published in the American Journal of Cardiology. And I can tell you what you can do as a paramedic if you want to prompt this. You can actually put suspected vaccine-induced myocarditis. Just write it on the run sheet. And, you know, those things are in triplicate, what have you, and you can't erase it. And that way you've already framed it. Don't wait for the doctor to try to frame it. And you find out if the kid took the vax, and if they took the vax and they've, um, you know, have chest pain, shortness of breath, or they've had a collapse recorded. I'll tell you another thing is syncope is very, very common now. You're going to have so many cases of syncope or just passing out, uh, that's not a cardiac arrest. It's, you know what it is? It's called POTS, posterior mm -hmm. orthostatic. It's actually due to the vaccine. Have you seen these vignettes, Jason? Have you seen these vignettes where all these um, newscasters yeah. just pass out, like like bazillions of them passing out and hitting their head and everything? That's called Dr. POTS. McCullough, yeah, we were watching the POEC when that happened to one of the uh, lawyers during the Public Court Emergency yeah. Commission live. Yeah. He just fades out. So, so that's POTS. So that's actually due to the vaccine, but that's not a cardiac arrest. 
But my point to Chet is if you're called for a kid who's passed out, don't assume that it's POTS and don't assume it's a simple vasovagal episode. Get the rhythm strip and stay on it because they may show you some VT uh, that you'll be able to you know, kind of nail this down. I'll tell you something else the vaccine causes, even in young people, and this is on my subject, it causes atrial fibrillation. So uh, what we're finding out is the paramedics can help a lot with some monitoring. A lot of times you end up with some you know, decent periods of monitoring, save those key rhythm strips, put in your assessment, suspected COVID-19 vaccine-induced myocarditis or POTS or the other syndromes and kind of put it to them. You know, they'd have to kind of try to rub that off the chart. It, it, it makes it a little better. You know, my son just graduated from medical school down at uh, UT Houston and he's at Texas Medical Center. I was asking, I, I'm up in Dallas. I'm seeing myocarditis, POTS, vaccine injuries all day long. That's all I'm seeing. I mean, there's so many people. And I said, Sean, what are you guys doing with all these cases down there? And he just told me, he says, no one documents the vaccine. Not the nurses, not the students, not the residents, fellows, or attendings. There's no mention of the vaccine. So that's how they're wow. doing it. No one's mentioning the vaccine. Oh, well, they've got pericarditis. It's just like that, um, that, that Yasmin anchor. You know, they just, no one's documenting the vaccine. No one's mentioning the vaccine. You know, Deion Sanders, former Dallas Cowboy great, he's got mm -hmm. blood clots. He's got an arterial blood clotting syndrome because of a family history of hypercoagulability. And you know, he's having multiple rounds of amputations and surgeries. He's even done a oh. docu-series on this. He's never mentioned the vaccine, even though he's taken multiple doses. He was tweeting out there, he's taking the vaccine and he's, you know, he was trying to, you know, uh, browbeat other people into taking the vaccine and they become willfully blind to the, to the fact they took the vaccine and the vaccine's causing their problem, even to the point of making a docu-series on it. And he just forgets to mention the vaccine. Well, it may not be him that knows it, right? Because he's an athlete, but his doctors must be telling him it's it's not vaccine. They took it off the table early, and then he's just following the rest of their conversation. I know, but the vaccine manufacturers and the FDA say they cause blood clots. But remember, you know this this is not controversial. You know, recently, no. you know, recently, Bronny James, the son of LeBron James, goes down. Uh, he's at USC. He's supposed to be a top recruit for the yeah, University of Southern California. He went to a high school where they mandated the vaccines with no exceptions, and then USC has a vaccine mandate. So certainly he's faxed up. Do you know LeBron James in this whole deliberation, he said in September of 2021 that LeBron did his own research, and he decided it was best for him and his family to take the vaccine. You know, that's three months after the FDA says the vaccines cause myocarditis. They cause heart damage. So what type of research did LeBron James we, we do? What athlete would want to take heart damage? They need their heart. I mean, this is so simple. This is so simple. The vaccines cause heart damage. No athlete would want to have heart damage. The guidelines in cardiology before COVID says if an athlete gets myocarditis, they can't exercise because the surge of adrenaline can precipitate a cardiac arrest. It, it's, it's just as... It's just as clear as that. That's the reason why they were screening the athletic leagues with COVID because they were afraid COVID caused myocarditis. But once the, and, and it doesn't. But now the vaccines roll in, they quit looking for myocarditis.
So here's good. a it's, question it's, in that regard. Sorry, that? Go ahead, Chet. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Um, with uh, regards to not exercising after myocarditis and uh, to a degree pericarditis as well, um, how long typically should somebody wait in terms of recovery before they actually start pushing themselves? Or is it... Um, Obviously, you want to ease into it, like after any cardiac injury. But is there is there a timeline that kind of lines up with this? Because um, a lot of people that I know who have been injured, they've kind of they haven't been able to get any much in terms of medical advice because they haven't even been able to truly get um, uh, like analyzed or seen or properly mm. diagnosed, and so a lot of them are left wondering, like when when can i when can i move here and that's uh, do you have any any advice or recommendations in that regard yeah american college of Card american college of cardiology has a guidance document now they focus on covid myocarditis instead of the the vaccines but you know just let's just try to apply it equally uh, they say about three to six months before you return to activity. I think it really depends on the blood tests, the EKG, and the MRI. I would not have anybody return to the playing field or exercise if their EKG is abnormal, and I wouldn't allow that uh, on the MRI uh, either. There's a paper on my Substack today uh, in myocarditis before the pandemic, a huge series. Myocarditis is rare. They had 587 cases, so it's a big series. And they had 15 years of follow-up. And what they wow. showed is that if the EKG and MRI are normal, that has the lowest risk, the highest risk if both are persistently abnormal. Now, risk, what I mean by that is death, hospitalization, or need for heart transplant. Uh, those who had an abnormal EKG and MRI persistently, 35% chance of that happening over 15 years, about 10% with those with normal studies. So it's not zero. Uh, but the point is, um, you know, I've been cautious. I've had some patients who have small areas on the MRI. They're improving. I treat them with colchicine, other drugs, and then I kind of allow them to ease into it. I tell them, listen, no 5K racing, you know, no life and death uh, tackling and other things. Just, you know, be cautious uh, and be prudent. So far, I haven't been burned, but I'm, I'm worried because you know, there's so many patients with myocarditis out there. I did get a chance to meet Pilot Snow. Did you hear about Pilot Snow, Bob Snow, American Airlines? No, but I I'm gonna talk to you about Greg Hill. I think, he, after. I think he spoke to Steve Kirsch before maybe. Yeah, but, uh, so, yeah. so listen, I wrote a substack called The Miracle of Pilot Snow. So this guy's an American Airlines pilot. He's forced to take the vaccine, which he doesn't wanna take. He takes one dose of Johnson Johnson and then two months later, he lands a big airplane at DFW Airport. The people are getting off the plane. The pilots are getting ready to get off. And then what Snow told me is he goes out. He is gone. He just is lights out. He remembers nothing. And I guess this was on the jetway. And there's no doctor around. You no, know, Normally, someone like me is around. We'll grab the defibrillator. We'll jump into action. There's no doctor around. So they call 911, and they're trying to do CPR on him. By luck. And by the grace of God, the paramedics, and there is an airport paramedic squad in Dallas, the paramedics are at the gate next door dealing with some old lady who's having problems probably. And they just run right over and they find him. He's unconscious. They have to shock him three times. So he was down for a while, but they got him back. No brain damage. Uh, he undergoes his workup. Blood testing's fine. MRI's fine. 
and he's left with this, you know, vaccine, and he had a cardiac, a primary cardiac arrest. So Snow took a subcutaneous ICD. So Chet, these are ICDs where there's a coil that goes underneath the pectoralis muscle, and then the can is over around the side. And uh, it's not too noticeable. You can feel it if you, you know, palpate there. And uh, Snow took one of those. I think that's similar to what the USC player had. And uh, I asked him, it's been a year and a half. He's working out and he's, you know, back to normal life. He can't work as a pilot, but he's back to normal life. And he said, no ICD discharge. It hasn't gone off. That's, that's good to hear. He's, that's, I can tell you, like, he's very lucky. Like all the stars lined up for him, like on that day. Cause um, mo unfortunately most cardiac arrests um, that we respond to, even if they are witnessed in the field, most of them don't survive because it, it takes us time to get there. The ones yeah. that do survive so, tend to have bystander CPR and an AED uh, put on them right away. And that's, that's the most important thing. And then we just kind of take over. Or, okay. So uh, Chet, Chet, uh, tell me what, where you are right now. Like what, where's your paramedic unit based? Uh, I'm in Anaganish, Nova Scotia. Okay. Nova Scotia. So just so our audience can know, so witnessed out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, just give us your best estimate. What do you think the survival rate is? Uh, let's say overall survival, first off, what would you say? Uh, for witnessed? Yeah. Um, in my experience in the, like with like our stats here, I think it's somewhere between like eight and 12%. Eight to, okay, not, not now, now that's eight to 12% survive. What percent do you think survive neurologically intact? Oh, geez, maybe maybe 5% or a little less. Yeah, less than that. Okay, so those numbers are right on the national statistics. I've looked at this uh, very carefully. Now, now, let's apply some data in the vaccine cardiac arrest. So I've published a paper with Panagis Polycretis, researcher from Italy, and we've looked at all the European cardiac arrests of the uh, football, soccer, rugby players. So age under 35, pro, semi-pro. In a period of time before the pandemic, we had data. And, and, it, and it's from a blog, but this blogger is keeping track. They have to have four or more press reports. And there's a lot of rigor to this. Um, the answer was, which is a lot of players in Europe, that there were 29 cardiac arrests per year, 29, before COVID. That number now, since the vaccines, annualizes up to 283 per year. So it's about a tenfold increase. Now, of, of those, and these are athletes, either in practice or in, the, in the stadium, when they have a cardiac arrest, two, even despite having everything there, two-thirds of the time, it's still fatal. Yeah. And a third survived to the hospital, a third. So those numbers are greater, Chet, because they're in a stadium or they're in a practice facility or they have, you know, yeah, they have, they have, they have the, the tools right there because yeah. the most important thing in cardiac arrest is early defibrillation because right. you need to, you need to catch that heart when it's in V-fib or VTAC and knock it back out. Um, right. Because if it, if it stays there long enough and goes asystolic or you go PEA, you're, 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 you're usually cooked. Um, sometimes yeah. you can push epi and, get it get it to contract again but that's that's a bit of a crapshoot um it's but as, as you said Listen, that, I, that, guys, that's I why they're with one more um yeah i gotta finish with just one more citation uh, and then i gotta get off but um 
we've examined this issue of people found dead, people just found dead at home, you know, after the vaccine. And uh, of the autopsies, uh, we've synthesized all, every autopsy report in the peer-reviewed literature, did a big database, got all the findings, re-adjudicated them with experts. Uh, the bottom line, the largest autopsy study done to date, 73.4% of these deaths are due to the vaccine, 73.4%. Wow. So, I mean, wow. there's some cases where someone took a drug overdose or it's un unrelated, but it's 73.4%. Now, listen, that paper is up on the Zenodo server, the European Commission's server. It's getting record downloads and reads. Typical paper, about 50 downloads and reads. We're coming up on 250,000 downloads wow. and reads. So this is probably the, the, the most uh, read all-time paper. And it definitively shows the vaccines are the cause of death. Listen, guys, I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm going to have to end it here and leave it here. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Make sure you follow me. Go to my personal website, petermcculloughmd.com. That'll take you everywhere. My podcast, America Out Loud Talk Radio, McCullough Report, 2 p.m. Eastern on Saturday and Sunday, and then the Apple iHeart Podcast Network. Courageous Discourse, the number one medical substack right now in the world. I write it with John Leake. That's where you find every citation I gave will be there. Make sure you pick up a copy of my book, Courage to Face COVID-19. It's a five-star bestseller, going to be a major motion picture. And, and then the, the last book. Yeah, the, the last thing I tell you about, this is big, McCullough Foundation. McCullough Foundation. So www.mcculloughfnd, uh, Frank, Nancy, David, McCulloughFND.org. That's providing support. I am going to court big time for the Canadians. I'm representing so many Canadians in court right now. I do all the work uh, pro bono. It's supported uh, based on donations to the foundation. Listen, thank you so much for having me on the show. Great, great, great discussion. Great discussion. Thank, thank you. you so much for coming. Thank you for everything you're doing.